Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors. We're just starting off in the, the prophet Micah. We did our first in-depth sermon this morning, as we usually do, and then at night we go verse by verse. But first we do a full introduction, and that's what we're going to do tonight. So if, I, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to the book of Micah? He's right after Jonah. Micah is the sixth minor prophet who spoke prior to the captivity of the northern kingdom going into captivity, 722. Yahweh that we've looked at, 845 B.C., Joel, 835 B.C., Jonah, 765 B.C., which he is the third in chronological order of our Bible, but fifth in the order of our Bible. So in chronology of the dates... He's uh, third, but fifth in our Bible. Amos is 360 B.C. We've looked at Hosea, 740 B.C., and he's the sixth in chronological order. And now we have Micah, 735, sometimes 740 B.C. Um, again, you know, we give you dates, but dates can change four or five years. We just try to round them off. Um, there's different schools of thought. Sometimes we may hit it on the nose, sometimes we're not. I wouldn't get too caught up with the exact dating um, at times. But um, again, these are the, um, the majority consensus by um, different scholars in that. Now, the minor prophets prior to the captivity of the southern kingdom by Babylon is... Um, from 606 to 586 B.C. consists of three. So you have Nahum in 710 B.C., Sephaniah, 625 B.C., and then Habakkuk, 608. So you have the northern kingdom. These three are the southern kingdom, which is Judah. Remember, the northern kingdom is called the northern kingdom. It's called Israel. It's called the ten tribes. The southern kingdom is Judah, Two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. Okay? So those are the terms that are used uh, alternately. Now, there are three minor prophets after the return from Babylon. 536 to 425 B.C. You have Haggai, 520 B.C., Zechariah, 520 B.C., and Malachi, 430 B.C. Now remember that um, you're working your way back from the upper numbers down as you move towards the New Testament. We made mention as we studied the minor prophets that Ezra A gathered the 12 minor prophets in the um, great synagogue in 475 B.C. and called, a, called it the book of the 12 and put them together. Our Bible distinguishes the minor prophets from the uh, major prophets. The title major prophets or minor prophets was given due to the, the shortness of the book um, to an extent, the minor prophets, the larger books. But even that category, it doesn't really hold true because uh, um, you have um, uh, the book of Zechariah, which is a minor prophet, has more chapters than um, the book of Daniel. And so you have to look at those things. So they're, they're true to an extent, but not completely all the time. Um, but all of these prophets were major leaguers. None of them were minor leaguers. They all spoke by the inspiration of God. They all revealed the word of God. Second um, Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Profitable correction instruction that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 to 21 says that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin. But they spoke as the Holy Spirit carried them along. So you have the guarantee that the scriptures expired out from God. The instruments were men. And they had their own choice of vocabulary, their own personalities. But as the Spirit was upon them, they weren't robots. They had freedom to express, but not to taint the message. That's hard for us to accept, but that's exactly what we have. And there's no other way you can guarantee prophecy unless that is true. And God reveals the end from the beginning. So those two scriptures in the New Testament guarantee the whole of Scripture as inerrant and infallible. And so Micah, like the others, is a man of passion, one with a clear message, as we even saw this morning, not a mere political orator or having some 
personal agenda. So let me begin here with the prophet Micah. The name Micah is very relevant to the message. His name means who is like Yahweh, which is an abbreviation form of Micah, uh, the last, Micaiah, um, um, I'm sorry, Micaiah. So we have the prophet Micaiah, if you remember, he prophesied. So you have a short form and a long form of the name. Now, Israel, in relationship to Yahweh, was to be like him, uh, his children, but they were not at this point, as we've been tracking the minor prophets, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Israel, on the other hand, had come to a place thinking herself to be her own authority, neglecting the standards of God. In other words, the law was given to them. They walked with God. They were all one nation. Then there was a division. Idolatry came in. And and at this point, it's 200 and some years that's been going on in the northern kingdom. Uh, Israel is reminded that Yahweh is unique and there is none like him. And perhaps there's even a play on words in uh, Micah 7.18. There's no one like him. That's exactly what uh, the word Micah means in God. So Micah is like his God. And there's a pun on words there that we don't catch in English. Micah gives no family name, no father, no mother as others, but simply identifies himself as a Morishite, like uh, Nahum the Eshkazlite and Amos from Tekoa, the location. And um, so there's a distinction between these three and others. Now Micah should not be confused with other uh, Micahs that are in the scriptures. If you put up, you know, today with computers, you can find things real fast. You just put up Micah, hit it, and you get all of them lined up. Um, The study took us so much longer before today with computers. It's a great technology. You can just um, uh, get things done so much faster. There were eight other individuals in the scriptures named Micahs. There was Micah the Levite who was hired to be a private priest in Mount Ephraim in the book of Judges, chapter 17 and 18. There was a descendant of Reuben in 1 Chronicles 5.5, a grandson of Saul, 1 Chronicles 8.34, a Levite of the family of Asab in 1 Chronicles 9.15, and a Kohathite, one of the Levitical tribes of Aaron, 1 Chronicles 23.20, and a messenger of Josiah, 2 Chronicles 34.20. Another prophet was named Micaiah, ben Imlah of the northern kingdom who prophesied and rebuked Jehoshaphat for joining himself with Ahab to fight against Syria. And we find him in 1 Kings 22.8. So you have these various one, and the last one is a Levite who sealed, who sealed a covenant with Nehemiah on the return from Babylon in Nehemiah 10.11. So these are the various people named Micah. Now the office of Micah, was as a spokesman for God, uh, a prophet is what we call him, though he's never called a prophet in his book. But we know he's a prophet of God because God gives him revelation. The first verse where the Lord came to Micah, he opens up his word declaring that he saw, that means the vision, revelation of where the Lord came to him, God imparted spiritual um, understanding and revelation. It was concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Both capitals, the northern and the southern kingdom. You find that in verse 1. Notice Micah calls the people and the leaders to hear God's word in verse 2 of chapter 1. And you'll find it in chapter 3, verse 1 also. And later on, we're going to find it in chapter 6, verse 1. That's the three divisions by the word here. Um, Micah's call was to proclaim judgment to both Samaria... And Judah, as I said, Jerusalem again being the greater culprit as the capital of the entire kingdom. That's the city of David. Dear Micah 1.5, it's mentioned. Uh, Micah was a prophet of, of Judah again as well. Well, he was from Judah there south of Jerusalem, 20 miles. Uh, Micah is quoted by Jeremiah, which is interesting. We find this at times that prophets quote each other. Um, they make reference. He quoted by Jeremiah as he spoke in Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah. And you find that in Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 18. The quote is from Micah uh, 3.12. Let me see if I can read it here. 3.12. 
if I can decipher it. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of, of ruins. And the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. And you find that quotation um, by uh, Jeremiah to give evidence that Micah did proclaim prophetically in the city of Jerusalem. And he looks back and he quotes him. As you know, Jeremiah later on will prophesy of the Babylonian captivity. Now, the origin of Micah, I've already stated it, but Micah was from Moresheth, here in chapter 1, verse 1, and also in 14, located about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, on the border between the uh, Judah and Philistia, the um, land of the Philistines. The country town was nothing special, uh, halfway between Jerusalem and Gath. Um, the humble origins of Micah is very relevant to his message as you go through the book, as he will point out the injustices over the poor, uh, the farmers, uh, and the shepherds. Um, chapter 3, verse 2 through 4, verse 8, or a few. And um, very possibly he himself um, may have partaken in some of these occupations, though he doesn't tell us like Amos did about his, but he was very concerned with them. Now, the horrible evil of the leaders is declared openly along with their philosophy of deception. Uh, chapter 3, um, verse 11. It says, Here has judge for a bride, priests teach for pay, and are prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come to us. <laughs> a philosophy that you can be corrupt and perverse and still claim the Lord, and he's going to protect you. Wow. How do you get from walking with God to this point? It's ignoring the checks of God, ignoring the call to repent from God. You just keep going. Micah was God's spokesman. Now, the contemporaries of Micah, Isaiah was prophesying at the same time. He was the older than Micah, having begun his ministry in the days of Uzziah. Again, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, he makes that cross-reference. God was faithful to the upper class using Isaiah in Jerusalem. God was faithful to the lower class using Micah. Doesn't mean they didn't preach to others of the other side, it just... You know, Paul the Apostle was sent to the Gentiles and, and, and Peter to the Jew. It didn't mean they didn't minister to the other, the other side also, but exclusively. Um, again, Hosea, a contemporary, he was an older contemporary uh, a few years earlier, as we've seen. Amos had prophesied about the social injustice as when Micah was a boy, as he was called from Tekoa. Only a 17 and a half miles east of Moresheth, the home of Micah. So, and Israel's not that big. The whole state of Israel is the state of Rhode Island. It's dinky, and you can go through it fast. Um, Micah has been called the prophet of the country, Isaiah, the prophet of the city. Isaiah was the prophet of love, as we saw. Amos, the prophet of justice. Micah is a marriage of the two, has been said, um, humble and hard, broken over his people. And then, of course, we saw Joel. He is the prophet of the day of the Lord. So this is the prophet Micah. Now, the times of Micah, we have to put it in context historically so that we can see, as he addresses his audience, where it fits historically. Again, Micah 1.1 prophesied through three kings. Jotham's reign was from 750 to 735 B.C. And sometimes days, they may differ, and you think there's contradictions, because some people mention the dates of the reigning king without the overlap co-regency of their son at times. Okay, so there'll be differences sometimes. Sometimes they'll mention the co-regency of five, ten years. Some will omit them, so it seems to be a contradiction. It is not. Ahaz's reign was from 735 to 715 B.C., and Hezekiah reigned from 715 to 687 B.C. Now, Micah prophesied for a good duration of time then. 
The period very conservatively could start at Jotham's reign, and we can go to 740 to 735, whichever you want. The period would have to include the entire reign of Ahaz. The period of 18 years in Hezekiah's reign would be very conservative, 715 to 687. So the prophet Micah could cover approximately about 53 years from 740 to 687. Remember, 740, you're going backwards when you're going towards the New Testament. Um, I've been in ministry for 40 years. It's gone by fast. Uh, 53 years here, you remember Jeremiah, about 50-some years also. Um, and, and it seems... Uh, as you're in ministry, it, it, you're not, it's not like a job, you know. Have you ever had a job you hate it? Man, from, from punching in at 8 or 7 o'clock to break, 10 o'clock coffee break, it is an eternity. But as you walk and you serve the Lord, it, it, you're not concerned about the time, the holidays, or anything else. It just it doesn't really matter. It's a whole different mindset. And life just flies. It's just an amazing thing. Now, this particular book had to have been proclaimed before the captivity of Samaria. Uh, captivity of 722 is what we're always told. And so 725 to 23, just right there at the very end, uh, he's the last prophet to the northern kingdom. Now, Micah, in the events during these three kings, Jotham was a good king, Ahaz was an evil king, and Hezekiah was a good king. Remember, the northern kingdom had no good kings at all. Um, the southern kingdom uh, had uh, 12 good ones, no, 12 bad and 8 good ones, and the northern kingdom had 19 bad ones. Ahaz had hired... Tilgath-Pileser, king of Assyria, to help him against Edom and the Philistines, but instead he, he distressed him. This is what was going on at the time, Second Chronicles 28, 16-21, and political alliances happen sometimes, you know, you, you want to call somebody to help you and they end up betraying you, you know, and you, it doesn't work out the way you planned it. He did help him against Syria. Therefore, Ahaz worshipped the gods of Syria and desecrated the temple with idolatry in Kings 16, 10 through 20. So, uh, idolatry broke into the southern kingdom as well as the northern kingdom. Hezekiah was a good king who brought about spiritual reform. If you remember going through Kings, he removed the high places, the idolatry. He paid tribute to Shalmaneser, who later sent officers to discourage the men on the wall, telling them not to trust in Hezekiah, who had removed all their gods in 2 Kings 18. But what Hezekiah did is remove all the idolatry, all the idols. A letter was sent to Hezekiah, and he spread it before the Lord. And Isaiah was also communicated about the letter. And he declared that no harm would come to Jerusalem. And God sent one angel in one night. And he killed 185,000 frontline Assyrian Jews in 2 Kings 19. Now remember, right now, uh, Micah is declaring to Judah, south and the north, Samaria, two capitals. Assyria is going, Assyria is going to take the northern kingdom just a year or two into captivity. But the southern kingdom is not going to go into captivity till 606, 596, 586, the final one. Okay? So it's a hundred and some years before the southern kingdom goes. And so when Assyria came and, 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 and taunted the men on the wall, God sent out that one angel and he wiped out 185,000 troops in one night. Just as God said, no harm would come to Jerusalem. Now, Micah prophesied the fall of Samaria, as we said, and he probably saw it. Micah also prophesied against the idolatry of Judah. And as we said, we know Hezekiah um, instituted spiritual reforms early in his reign. 
but they were superficial. In other words, the people were so corrupted and so polluted already with the idolatry and all the junk that very few people paid attention and they obey, okay, you're the king and that, but it wasn't at heart wholeheartedly with the whole of Israel. And so therefore, um, they reverted back. Micah denounced two main sins, the perversion of the worship and practices. Samaria's idols would be melted and profited, or that profited them from the religious prostitution, and they would be taken by Assyria, we're told in chapter 1, verse 7. The false prophets by divination would be silenced by God in chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. The judges took bribes, the priests taught for pay, and the prophets divine for money, guaranteeing safety in the name of the Lord, as I've read in chapter 3, verse 11. You would think that, well, you know, that's back then. That doesn't happen today, really? You have this whole new movement with the emergent church of prophets and the third wave and all this stuff that goes on, taking the titles of prophets and apostles and, uh, and, and the stuff that they're lying about and the things they do that are not of God, and yet they're, they're, they're claiming the blessings of God. They're claiming the protection of God. It's happening today in every generation. God would cut off sorcery, soothsayings, Carved images, the sacred pillars, all their false worship in chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. The injustices towards people is the other matter. So you have the corrupt worship, then the injustices towards people. They planned and they plotted evil during the night, as we saw this morning, to steal their properties and their inheritance in chapter 2, verse 12. Greedy. They took advantage over the mortgages, casting the widows and children from their homes in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. They oppressed, brutalized, and victimized the people in chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. The leaders perverted justice, built with blood money in chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. And the faithful has perished, the leader, the priests, judges, and those of one's family cannot be trusted, for they were evil, Micah 7, 2 through 6. Perilous days. This was the time of Micah. Let me give you the division of the book of Micah. There's different ways to look at it. There are three messages by natural division, by the repeated phrase, here. First is addressed to all the people of the earth, chapter 1, verse 2, which goes chapter 1 and 2. Okay? The second division would be to the leaders, chapter 3, 4, and 5, and you find the word here in chapter 3, verse 1. Then the third one is to the people of again, chapter 6 and 7, and you find the word here in chapter 6, verse 1. So the word here is found at the beginning of each of those divisions. Then there's a threefold division that you can put by subject matter. Present judgment, chapter 1, 2, and 3. Future blessing, 4 and 5. Present repentance, 6 and 7. But the natural division is the first one. The second one is by subject matter. You see, the future blessing for Israel has to do with the Messiah. In chapter 4, verse 1, you have the millennial reign. In chapter 4, verse 7, you have the Messiah's reign. In chapter 5, verse 2, you have the Messiah's birth, Bethlehem. And the manner of walk is in 6.8. The last song we sang tonight is the key verse of the book. Let me read here. 
6, 8, the key verse to the book. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let me give you some key words, phrases, and key verses. First, some key words. The word here, I've given it to you already three times. One, two, three, one, six, one. You have the word Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, three times. Micah 1, 1, 1, 5, 1, 6. Jacob is mentioned five times to identify Israel. 1, 5, 2, 7, 2, 12, 3, 9, 7, 20. Then there's the phrase, the transgression of Jacob, two times. 1, 5, and 3, 8. Heads of Jacob, one time. 3, 1. The house of God of Jacob, one time. 4, 2. House of Jacob, one time. 2, 7. Remnant of Jacob, two times. Micah 5, 7. 5, 8. Jerusalem, seven times. 1, 5. 1, 9. 1, 12. 3, 10. 3, 12. 4, 2. 4, 8. Judah, four times. Micah 1, 1. 1, 5. 1, 9. 5, 2. Israel, 12 times. <laughs> I'll let you find them. <laughs> so by looking at these key words, you, you get the gist of the concentration and focus where the prophet is going and who he's addressing. Key phrases. Um, latter days. Micah 4.1. Only one time. But it's very key. That day, Micah 2 4, 4 6, 5 10, 7 11, 7 12, all of them refer to the kingdom age except for the first one, 2 4. And we touched on that this morning. It was to the day of Micah, not the latter days. So all of them are to the kingdom age except for the first one in chapter 2, verse 4. Another phrase that's key is ruler in Israel, Micah 5.2, Messiah. Key verses, I'll just throw them out to you. In chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 2. Chapter 6, verse 8. Chapter 7, 18 and 19. Again, the key verse of the entire book is Micah 6, 8. This is the book of Micah. Now, let us just walk through the epistle without a real study format or anything so that you can see how it flows. Beginning here with the first division, the present judgment in hand, Micah chapter 1, 2, and 3, you have the introduction revealing the message for both Samaria and Jerusalem in verse 1, the origin of Micah, Moresheth, and the three kings during his prophetic ministry, Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. The coming judgment then is given from verse 2 to verse 5. 2 to 4, all the people of the earth are commanded to hear the judgment of the holy God, which nature itself shudders under. The mountains melt. The hills. Verse 3 through 5, the reason for God's judgment was apostasy by Jacob and the sins of Israel. Both capitals are charged, Samaria and Jerusalem. 
In verse 6 and 7, the spiritual harlotry would be judged by Assyria. Assyria would be the instrument of God. Shalmaneser III and Sargon are the ones. 2 Kings 17, 4 through 6 and Isaiah 10, 5 declares that Assyria would be the rod of his anger and indignation. The prophet's mourning then is given to us, his grief over this revelation, verse 8 through 16 of chapter 1. Verse 8 and 9, his wailing is for their incurable wound that have even come to Judah and the gate of his people to Jerusalem. It's incurable. It's going to lead to death. Verse 10 through 15, the prophet goes on into a section that is a play on words to describe the effects of the judgment through the invasion of Assyria to the area he grew up in. Verse 10 through 15. I'm not going to go through them right now. We'll go through them when we um, deal with the verse by verse. And they're real catchy and, and they have a lot to do with the judgment that's being declared that's coming. Now, in verse 16, the marks of grief for their children in their captivity is baldness, grief, humiliation, devastation. When you get to chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, the sins of the people are indicated. We looked at the whole chapter in depth this morning. I would encourage you to get that message if you weren't here. Verse 1, they plot, scheme, and devise how to do evil at night in bed, having the power to do it. <laughs> in verse 2, covetousness, ceasing of properties by violence and oppression of man and his inheritance is indicated. Verse 3 to 5, God will fight against them, having them amazed and hopeless. Verse 6 through 7, they silenced the prophets, telling them not to prattle, drip, literally. Yet, that was not God's way to be resisted or restricted by man. For when God sends the prophets to speak, his word is to be a benefit to bless the upright. In 8 to 11, chapter 2, God's people had become his enemies by their social injustice. They were not loving. They were not compassionate. They had no sympathy or empathy for anybody. In verse 8, they took the garment as if they were war prisoners and didn't return it to them. The Pledge of Security that we talked about this morning, Exodus 22, where they had a coat or garment and you would give that as a down payment if you borrowed some money and then you'd go to work and that night you'd come back and maybe you'd give a little money or whatever it was and then you'd take that pledge back so you can sleep and be warm at night. The next morning you would give it back and then you'd go back to work again. But um, here they would just take their stuff. Verse 9 through 10, they would foreclose mortgages under false pretenses. Nothing new. Greed. Verse 11, their false prophets were the pratters or drips themselves. Verse 12 through 13, the remnant would be restored. So from all this that he goes from the present of their evilness, he jumps right into the verse 12 and 13 without any announcement, right into the kingdom age. Passes up the rest of the Old Testament, the 400 years silence, the 2,000 years that we've been in the, in, in, under the age of grace, and it goes right into the kingdom. Makes no announcement. The sins of the rulers are given in chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. I'm sorry, chapter... Yeah, 3, 1 through 12. The message... Preceded by here now, there's the natural division. The heads and rulers of Israel who had the greater responsibility, chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus said to those of much is given, much more is required. Paul makes this very clear to Timothy in the pastoral epistles also. 
In chapter 3, verse 2 through 3, their injustice and lack of mercy was due to their love for evil and hate for good. And when a society gets that place, you see atrocities that go on under the name of justice because it depends who is behind the bench and who are the lawyers and who are the politicians. When there's no uprightness and no righteousness, then it becomes a, 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 a cancer to a nation. In Micah 3.4, God is the defender of the poor and he will not overlook their abuse of power and evil or shut his ears to them. Chapter 3, 5 through 8, the sins of the prophets are given. Verse 5, they lead people astray, declare lies of peace, and favor those who pay them. Once again, nothing new under the sun, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Verse 6 and 7, God won't speak to them. He will judge them. They shall be ashamed and cover their lips, having nothing to say. You know, people have big mouths. But when God deals with a person, and God does, does deal with non-believers, God made himself known to Pharaoh. And let me tell you, he humbled Pharaoh. God made himself known to, Bel, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. And he humbled himself. God made himself known to Belshazzar. His knees knocked one against the other. He sobered up real quick. The source of Micah's words is God's spirit in contrast to the false prophets. Chapter 3 verse 8 says. Verse 9 through 12 of chapter 3. The specific sins of leaders in Jerusalem are declared resulting in the judgment of Zion and Jerusalem. Verse 9, they abhor justice and pervert all equity. Verse 10, they build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Verse 11, the first portion, the heads judge for bribes. The rest of 11, the priests teach for pay. And then the final part of 11, the prophets divine for money. And then at the end, they say the Lord is among them and nothing will come upon them. Wow. Now they're either utterly deceived or they are just a bunch of liars and they know judgment is coming. One of the two. They would see Zion plowed like a field in Jerusalem in a heap. Here is the quote that Jeremiah made in Jeremiah 26, 18 of Micah. Then you have the future blessing ahead, Micah chapter 4 and 5. The Lord's reign is Zion, Micah 4, 1 through 8. Notice in verse 1, the latter days is a term used for the end days, sometimes used for the tribulation and great tribulation. Latter days, Micah 4, 1. In that day, Micah 4, 6. In that day, Micah 5.10. The word but is a better translation instead of now. It is in sharp contrast to what precedes where Jerusalem and the Temple Mount would be destroyed. The context noticed here is the millennial. For the mountains of the Lord's house is Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. People shall flow to it, Zechariah 8. In chapter 14, verse 4. Sometimes sections may have a twofold prophetic view. The short term and the long term is the ultimate fulfillment. Great tribulation, millennial kingdom. The Lord and Messiah, notice in verse 2 of chapter 4, will teach the nation and people his word. The word teach there comes from um, the word to cast a javelin or to shoot an arrow. The idea is of pointing to walk in his paths, directing someone, guiding someone. Chapter 4, verse 3, there will be righteous justice and world peace for Christ will rule with a rod of iron. 
All military budgets will be for agricultural means. It'll be the military armament into farm tools. Joel has just the opposite for Armageddon. He'll beat them into military armaments in Joel 3.10. Remember, we covered that. Now, the, um, the United Nations has this verse on their building, which is completely out of context and off the wall, where that will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. It will never be fulfilled here on earth. As long as there is one sin on the earth, there will be fights and wars. Because the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, and we are selfish, we are covetous, and we are greedy. And unless God rules our heart, we will rule anything and anyone we can. It's just the way it is. Isaiah is almost identical to these first three verses. Isaiah 2.24, chapter 4 here. Now, there will be prosperity here in chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. And security with certainty. And all will walk in the name of the Lord, for the Lord of hosts has spoken it. So this is the millennial kingdom that's being dealt with here in chapter 4 and 5. Jesus will be ruling. We will be reigning with him. Israel will have occupied the kingdom age, the remnant. All those who didn't take the mark of the beast will enter the millennial kingdom. They will live, marry, repent, or not repent, die, just like we do now. We will be glorified, but those who enter from the great tribulation that didn't take the mark of the beast. It will run for a thousand years. Satan will be bound for those thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is loose again. And guess what happens? With the greatest environment, Jesus on earth, him ruling, they'll still rebel against the Lord. To silence all the psychologists and sociologists, that is not the environment, it's the heart of man that's the problem. In verse 4 and 5 here of chapter 4, under the vine and fig tree are common Hebrew phrases and symbols of the kingdom age for Israel. And the vine and the fig tree, certainly for Israel. We've seen this. In that day, God will gather his people and restore physically and spiritually the Jew, verse 6 and 7. God will restore the former boundaries in the land in verse 8 of chapter 4. All the promises of the Old Testament, the land has never been accomplished, not even in Solomon. The greatest king never occupied all the boundaries given to them by God. The chastising before restoration comes in chapter 4, verse 9 through 13. Verse 9 through 10 of chapter 4. The Babylonian captivity for Judah and deliverance by Cyrus is given. Verse 9 and 10. Isaiah prophesied about it. Isaiah 44, verse 28 to chapter 45, verse 1. Hezekiah showed all he had in his house, remember, to the ambassadors from Babylon after he had recovered from his illness. And Isaiah said, in Isaiah 39, 6, and said, what did you show him? He said, oh, there's nothing that I have that I didn't show them. Oh, man, they're going to come back and they're going to take everything away. Your children, everybody. And Hezekiah said, okay, well, at least it's not my lifetime. What a jerk. His children, his grandchildren. As long as it doesn't bother me, it's okay. Wow. And he was a good king. <laughs> That's one of the good ones. In the great tribulation, all will gather against Israel. Micah 4.11. We're seeing that being prepared right now. Right now, the whole world's against Israel, including the United States. Don't believe the news. Don't believe Obama. He has a fork and tongue. Joel chapter 3, Zechariah 12, Ezekiel 38, 39. They'll all attack Israel. In chapter 4, verse 12, God will use a wicked nation to chasten his people and then turn around and judge them afterwards. They do not know 
his thoughts or understand his counsel, even as Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4. God will use Israel for his glory, not her own selfishness. The horn represents power. The metal bronze represents judgment. When you get to chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, the beginning there, the Messiah is in relationship to Israel now. In chapter 5, verse 1, his rejection by the Jews is mentioned. Matthew 25, 67. Cross-reference. Some attempt to identify Zedekiah in 2 Kings 24, 15. It's wrong. The birth of Messiah, 5-2. Ephrata, David's original home. 1 Samuel 17, 12. Bethlehem means house of bread. Matthew 2, 4 through 6. Remember, they got there by Caesar's decree in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Ruler of Israel, Genesis 4, 9, 10. Shiloh, the scepter, Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah 11, 1. Who is from everlasting beyond the vanishing point. Both as deity and humanity are implied. John 1, 1, 1, 14. John 8, 58. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Verse 3 of chapter 5, his rejection of Israel until the 70th week of Daniel. Daniel 9, 27. Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Jesus said, as he wept over Jerusalem, how many times I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers the chicks on her wings, but you would not. So now I leave unto you desolate. You should not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Paul the Apostle grieved over this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He could wish himself a curse. And he lays out that Israel is by election as a nation, not individual salvation. The Calvinists always take chapter 9, 10, 11 of Romans and corrupt it. He's quoting the remnant. He's saying, Esau I have hated, Jacob have I loved. He's quoting Malachi, and Malachi is referring to Genesis 25. The election of the nation Israel over the nation of Edom. That's the context. Very important. So when Calvinists give you that, give them the context. Watch him go blinky-eyed. His regathering of Israel at his second coming is in verse 4 of chapter 5. Shepherd means to feed, tend, to protect. Jesus is the good, the great, and the chief shepherd. This will be in the millennial kingdom again. Still in verse 5, the reference to one in capital O is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6, a son is given, a child is born. There'll be no peace on earth until Jesus returns, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely no peace. The last part of verse 5, down to 15 of chapter 5, you have the judgment on Israel's enemies. In verse 5, the rest of it, Assyria refers to the last days, not Micah's Assyria. It's looking forward. The area of Iraq, Iran, known as Persia until 1936-37, then it became Iran. And it may refer to the deliverance of Judah as prophesied by Isaiah and the angel that slew 185,000. So it could have a short term and a long term. But certainly the long term is the fulfillment of that. In verse 7 through 9, God will use the Jews. Now we read in the book of Revelation 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe in Revelation 12. Those are not Jehovah Witness, okay? If they claim it, ask them what tribe they're from. Um... Verse 10 through 15, God will purify his people in preparation for his coming. In verse um, 10, horses refer to self-dependency and power militarily. In verse 11, he will make them defenseless. In verse 12 through 14, he will purify the land of false worship, sorcerers, soothsayers, and carved images. And in verse 15, God will execute wrath and judgment on the nations who have not obeyed. This is not the church. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.9, 1 Thessalonians 
And Paul declares, as he writes to the Thessalonians, in chapter 1, verse 10, how they had turned from their idols and looking to heaven, waiting for Jesus Christ to come from heaven to deliver us from the wrath to come. Anybody who teaches you the church is going to go through tribulation is not biblical. Now, it doesn't deal with salvation, but it deals very much how you will interpret Scripture. If you believe the church is going to go through tribulation, you will have to interpret Scripture completely opposite of what it's supposed to be. It does make a big difference. So we believe that we will be raptured. We believe that the Lord will remove His church. We're not appointed to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are a virgin bride looking for a wedding. The seven years of tribulation from Revelation 6 to 18 is the wrath of the Lamb being poured out from the throne of the Lamb to this earth. The bride is removed. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. We shall be caught up, our puzzled to the air to be with the Lord forevermore. Suddenly, violently. Now, when you get to chapter 6 and 7, the present repentance required, this is the third division. God pleaded with Israel here in Micah 6, 1 through 8. The repeated phrase here now, this is the third message, 6, 1 and 2. God centers and he enters into a lawsuit and Micah is his attorney. And he tells them to declare their complaint against God. But he addresses them to the hills and to the mountains as his witness. We've seen this in Hosea. We've seen this in other uh, books. God calls, accuse me, show me. This is the tribunal of heaven. Mountains are often representative kingdoms. In verse 3 through 5 of chapter 6, God asks where and how he had failed in pointed out all he had done for them. Like Isaiah 5, you know, I, I hedged the, 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 the vineyard, I watered it, I fertilized it, I did all I could. What else could I do? I was expecting good grapes and I got sour grapes. God was telling Israel, it's not my fault. It's your fault. Wow. He redeemed them from Egypt. He gave them leaders, Moses, Aaron, Miriam. He protected them from Balaam in Numbers 22 to 24. That they may know the righteousness of the Lord towards them. Jeremiah 2, 5 through 8 says. The prophet, notice, declared God did not want burnt offerings in verse 6 and 7. Calves, rams, oil. Not even their firstborn. These were just religious rituals that people go through thinking that that pleases God. Revealing ritual without righteousness is futile, empty, and God is not pleased with the works void of faith. So God had revealed what was good and required of man in chapter 6 verse 8, the key verse. To do justly, man is unjust and evil. To love mercy, man loves vengeance. To walk humbly with his God, man is prideful. All a product of relationship, not religion, fulfilling the law in Christ, as we're told in the New Testament. Verse 9 down to 12 of chapter 6, God revealed Israel's guilt, rejecting wisdom. Wisdom cries out in verse 9 of chapter 6. Proverbs 1 through 9 is the introduction to Proverbs. It's the personification of wisdom before it begins to Proverbs. She's portrayed as a woman. The rod is judgment, chastening. They were wealthy through unrighteous dealings, verse 10 says, of chapter 6. They were deceitful in business. Verse 11. The rich were engaged in violence to obtain wealth. Verse 12. Lies characterize the society. Deceit to benefit self. 
In verse 13 through 16, God reveals their judgment. Verse 13, God will make them desolate for their sin. Verse 14, God will remove the abundance they knew. God will turn them over to their enemies. Verse 15, their labor others would enjoy. 16, the reason being they walked in the statues of Omri and all the works of Ahab, evil people. Omri was the father of Ahab who purchased the heel of Samaria, an evil king in 1 Kings 16.24. Ahab was the son of Omri who married Jezebel and introduced Baal worship to Israel in 1 Kings 16.31. Nearly 2,000 years later, the effects are still being felt present in the land. The word hissing implies disdain. It's like booing. Chapter 7, verse 1 through 7. The prophet's lamentation over sin. Verse 1 and 2, the prophet likens the scarcity of righteousness and righteous men as the summer gatherings and gleaning. Verse 3, the corrupt leadership. All the loyal men have perished. In verse 4, their character is like a briar or thorns, hurtful and destructive due to the fall. That's the potential of every person. Their punishment is very near. Verse 5 and 6, their lack of trustworthiness, even from one's own house and family. Treachery and betrayal, you couldn't trust anybody. Jesus quotes this verse, dividing family members. I've, I've not come to her in peace, but a sword. Put father against son, son against father, mother against daughter. Not to hate them, but because you make a decision for Christ, you are cast out, you are hated. Even the closest of your family at times. Matthew 10, 34-36, Luke 12, 51-53. Then in verse 7 through 10, the prophet's confession of faith in God. Verse 7, his complete trust in God. He will look to the Lord, he will wait for God, God will hear him. In 8 through 10, Israel will turn to God in the tribulation period. Submission to chastening. Acknowledgement of sin, trust in God, dependent for protection. Then in verse 11 through 17, God's final restoration. 11 through 13, the time in that day during the tribulation. Great tribulation. The prayer of Micah to God, verse 14 through 15. For God the shepherd lead and protect as in the days of Egypt. Verse 16 through 17, the invading nations shall be ashamed and humbled. 18 through 20, the rhetorical question of Michael, or Micah. Who is a God like you? The pun on words, what his name means. What's the answer? No one. No one is like God. He declares judgment to come. He declares the kingdom age to come. He declares restoration to come. The identity of God. He pardons iniquity. Look at 18 and 19. He passes over transgressions of the remnant. He doesn't retain his anger forever. He delights in mercy, loving kindness. He will have compassion on Israel again. He will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Verse 20. God's faithfulness to his covenant. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Go back to Genesis 12, chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. The initial promise. This was the message of Micah. Wow. Great little book. There's your introduction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your love and your goodness. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the hunger you've given us for your word, Lord. 
And we pray that we would just open our heart to you in every way. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior tonight, maybe you're over the internet. God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You alone can make that decision. No one can make it for you. If you agree with God that you're a sinner and need a salvation by grace through faith, then you can call upon him right now. This is your prayer of repentance as you open your heart to Jesus Christ. And he's going to forgive you and make you his son or daughter. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.